Welcome to the Open Bible Podcast, a resource of Church of the Open Bible in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. In our continuation of our series, Basic Theology, Pastor Jay and Pastor Joe discuss Chapter 15 and the Doctrine of Inerrancy, and why this is such an important doctrine of our faith as Christians. Hello, church and guests. This is Pastor Jay Hines. And Pastor Joe Sorgent. Welcoming you to another episode of the Open Bible Podcast. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On today's episode, we're continuing to work through and discuss the doctrines presented in Charles Ryrie's book, Basic Theology, which many of us are reading here at Church of the Open Bible this year. And this week, we will be discussing the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, which Ryrie helpfully unpacks in chapters 12 through 14. So let's get started, Joe, with just the most basic, obvious question. What is the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture? How would we define it? Well, I think if we say that the Bible is inerrant, if we put it uh, one way, we could say that means that the Bible was is without error. And, uh, you know, that has more of the negative, right? When it's without error. If we put it in the positive sense, then it would be that the, the Bible, God's word, is true. So to say that the basically that the Bible is errant uh, is inerrant, pardon me, is to say that it is without error and completely true. Yeah, and so um, in our church catechism that we we use that I put together a few years ago for kids, one of the questions, um, the answer is the Bible is completely true and trustworthy, and I think that really is again sort of the positive way of mm-hmm. addressing this. Now, there's been many definitions of this doctrine given. Uh, One that I found very helpful is by Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. He says, Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now, it's interesting. He gets a little more specific there. He says, in the original manuscripts. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, obviously, the Bible as we have it, and we're going to look at this next week a little bit with uh, the canon of Scripture, but we don't have the originals, the original manuscripts, the original writings of all of the scripture, but we have copies. Now, of course, those copies, as we look back on them, and we have so many, it's pretty amazing the amounts that we have from the New Testament, old manuscripts. Uh, but they show us that as we look at them all together, that what we have is extremely accurate. The differences are so minute in some of those copies, but nevertheless, they are copies. And so we, we have to realize there can be some errors made by the copyists over the centuries, however small they might be. And so for accuracy's sake, Grudem says, and we would affirm that when we're talking about the Bible being without error, yes, we're talking about our Bible as we have it, including our English translations. But we recognize that ultimately what we're talking about is the original writings, uh, that they are without error. They are completely true. And that's what he means by that. Now, another theologian, Paul Feinberg, he gets even more specific. He says, when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs, which is another way of saying those original manuscripts, um, and are properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical or life sciences. So he, he says, when properly interpreted, basically saying that uh, sometimes our, if we have faulty interpretations of a passage or understandings, that then could make us think, well, wait a minute, does this actually fit with uh, another passage? And then we could start wondering, well, is there error here? So ultimately, as we look at both of those definitions, we see that, well, we 
can just plainly affirm scriptures without error. It's true. There are some nuances there that we need to um, draw out and, and try to try to work with and explain. Yeah, I'm sure you've probably noticed here, all of these definitions continue to have gotten a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little <laughs> bit longer. Well, uh, there's a statement called the Chicago Statement, which affirmed inerrancy. And this is how they defined inerrancy uh, for themselves. It's pretty short at first. It says, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching. Very succinct, very nice. But then they followed that up with 19 separate articles to further describe what inerrancy is. So even though really, if we just look at the very simple definition, we think, oh man, this doctrine is very simple and it is, yet it's it's also quite elaborate as well. We have to, we have to understand what do we mean by saying the Bible is true? What is truth? Uh, how do we determine that? And so I think that's something that uh, is often where some of these, uh, you know, questions comes come from when it comes to inerrancy. Yeah. And part of that in those 19 articles are affirmations and denials and basically their responses to some of the attacks on inerrancy that have been given. And probably uh, some of the more common ones are because when we look at scripture and Ryrie mentions this, we find things like approximations in numbers, round numbers or free quotations, right? The apostles, for example, quoting the old Testament, uh, not exactly, but freely. Uh, there's language of appearances, right? Like the sun rising and setting, even though, of course, we know scientifically that that's not how it works. We rotate around the sun. And there's different accounts of the same event, like the four Gospels or Genesis 1 and 2, that kind of thing. Well, saying that the scripture is without error recognizes those and realizes that we can use approximations, round numbers, free quotations, appearances, different accounts of the same event, and still say that they're true, right? It's just... Uh, understanding that when we do that in literature, when we use a round number, we recognize that what it's saying, according to what it's trying to do, is truthful. It's not error. Now, if the Bible was saying, hey, by the way, this is exactly the amount of people that were in this situation to the T, to the very number, and then gave a number that contradicted itself later, well, that'd be a problem. But that's not what scripture is doing. It's using normal human language like we do. Yeah, exactly. And so that would be one example of the many examples with the Chicago statement where that would be like a, an affirmation of, of what inerrancy is. Yeah. Now, Ryrie on uh, page 93 gives some interesting examples of how we use this uh, understanding of, of truthful speech in our common language all the time. Joe, do you want to mention just a few of those? Yeah. So uh, an example he gives is in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 8, which says that 23,000 people died in one day. Uh, whereas, uh, speaking about an event that happened in Numbers 25, where it records that 24,000 died. But it doesn't add there in Numbers uh, that there was that in one day. So, you know, we can we can look at that then, that both are telling the complete truth, is what Ryrie says. And he says, probably both figures are approximations of the number that died in one day and the number of additional deaths later. And so, really, we could probably very fairly say, well, then, you know, if they're both approximations, likely the number of people that died was somewhere between 23,000 and 24,000. And there's no contradiction actually there. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. There's no error. They're just both approximations of uh, the same event of the number of people who, who died. Yeah. So we could say if there's a plane crash and a reporter says a hundred people died, right? When actually there was 103 right? Well, we often will use round numbers. We understand that. Or uh, Ryrie gives the example 
here of someone uh, saying, oh, I have a friend who makes $100,000 a year. When in, and in fact, they make 100537 But we, we use that kind of terminology regularly, just rounding numbers uh, to make a point, right? We're not necessarily being precise. Now, if that same friend was the person's um, accountant <laughs> and was needing to be very precise, then of course he would be. And if he had said 100000 it would be an error. But because he's not using it in that context, he's just saying, yeah, you know, makes $100,000 a year in a round number. We recognize it as truth. And so those are just some examples mm -hmm. that obviously when we get into this issue, there are some nuances. There are some things we need to explain and think through. And yet just common sense tells us, well, yeah, of course, this is still true, right, as far as what it's trying to do. And so Ryrie ends up defining it this way, inerrancy, with a little bit of detail. He says, the Bible is inerrant and that it tells the truth and it does so without error in all of its parts with all its words. And that's a good definition. Now, how do we uh, arrive at this conclusion? How, how do we get to this doctrine? Where does it come from? Well, first of all, scripture clearly implies it many, many times. Um, it's interesting to me that Particularly in the Psalms, there's a lot of affirmation. And I just want to read you just a few Psalms to see that for yourself. Uh, Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the grounds, a ground purified seven times, right? So there's no uh, corruption in it. There's nothing impure. Well, certainly that would imply its truthfulness, right? To say that God's word is pure and then say, but there's errors. Well, clearly that doesn't add up. Another passage is later in Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Again, that seems pretty clear that to say that, make that affirmation at the same time say, but there's some errors just wouldn't add up. Now, actually, Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9 is I think especially telling. I mean, I'm going to read these verses and imagine uh, me saying, imagine, sorry, David, who, who wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said these things and then at the end, but there are some errors. It just, again, wouldn't add up. He says, the law of the, law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Implication, the scriptures are completely true and trustworthy. They are without error, right? Seems pretty clear. Mm -hmm. uh, and then just three more verses really quick, just to make the point. Psalm 119, there are many passages that also affirm this. I'm just going there. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, in your steadfast love, give me life that I may, whoop, no, sorry, uh, in forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Again, how can it be firmly fixed if there are errors that could uh, corrupt it? Or 96, I've seen a limit of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And then maybe more, most tellingly, uh, verse 160 in Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So the scriptures clearly imply what we're defining here as inerrancy. But the scriptures also clearly require it just as we do deductions from what it says. Isn't that true? Exactly. Um, like the, the word of God says in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 that 
God never lies. That is, God is true. And we looked at last week uh, how God inspired scripture, how God breathed out the Bible in 2 Timothy 3.16. So if we put those two together, God cannot lie and God has breathed out scripture. Well, therefore, we, we would realize, well, then the Bible must be true. And there, there, it's not, it's not a lie. It is truth. And so, uh, right there, we see right away the Bible claims for itself clearly uh, that it is true. Yeah, another passage is First Thessalonians two thirteen mm-hmm. that talks about where Paul's saying these are not. Uh, you received what we taught you not as the words of men, but as the very word of God, which it is. Okay, so Scripture is God's word. Well, again, then we look at Titus 1-2, or another passage would be Hebrews 6-18, which again affirms God cannot lie. Therefore, if it is God's word, then it must be true. It must be without lies, without error. So scripture clearly requires this as we put the pieces together. But then maybe most importantly, we see in scripture that this is clearly what Christ believed and what he said, right? Yeah, exactly. We see throughout Jesus' life, for one thing, he references the Old Testament all the time. And how he speaks, it's it's always assuming that the that the scriptures are true, that they are without error. And probably I think one of the, the most interesting things that Jesus does is talk about uh, what's written in the Old Testament, especially accounts. We think of the creation accounts, the account of the flood, the account of of Jonah, uh, all of which are often disputed and pointed at by by people who debate whether there's error in the Bible and say, well, those things can't be true. That's way too over the top. Well, Jesus speaks about those things like they are historical fact, because, of course, they are. And now, are we going to dispute what Jesus had to say? You know, he's our Lord and Savior. He is God made flesh here on earth. Are we going to really point to Jesus and say like, oh, but you're a little off there. Like you're you're speaking something erroneous. No, we're never going to say that to Jesus. That's ridiculous. And he clearly, clearly says that all those events are historical fact. That's just one example. Of course, there's many more. Yeah. And like we said last week about inspiration, who are we going to believe? Uh, people who are bringing attacks on this, on the on the doctrine of inerrancy, or the person who was raised from the dead? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with the guy who raised from the dead and exactly. what he says all the time. Yeah. And what he says is very clear. John 17, 17 may be the most clear um, expression of what we would call inerrancy is Jesus' words when he's praying in the high priestly prayer. And he says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, right? God's word, the scriptures are truth. And we can therefore uh, have complete confidence in its inerrancy. Now there's more that Jesus said. We think of what he said in Matthew 4, when he's talking to uh, the devil during his temptation and Mm -hmm. clearly again, using scripture. He says, you know, every word, um, man lives by every word, right? Not just... Um, the thoughts of scripture, but by every word, and then goes on to use the word in pre- with precision in order against Satan. In fact, he even, as Satan tries to twist the scriptures, he goes back to the very words and shows that he was misunderstanding it. Again, showing that the very words of scripture are absolutely true. Uh, or Matthew 5, 17 to 18, where he says that um, everything that has been prophesied and promised will be fulfilled in the Old Testament. And he even goes on to say not just every word, but every little piece of grammar. Mm-hmm. So, all of that adds up to show us that clearly this is what Christ believed. And so if we are Christians, we too must believe that the scriptures are true. They're without error. But nevertheless, some Christians do deny this doctrine. Why do you think that is, Joe? Well, uh, this is a bit of a, a generalization, but I think oftentimes people 
doubt the truthfulness of the word as an excuse for their sinful lifestyle. I think that is often what happens. You know, uh, I really want to live this way, but the Bible says it's wrong. Well, if I say that the Bible has errors, then maybe it has an error about this area of my life as well. And then I'm free to live this way. So I think that's that's one uh, one area where that that would happen. Uh, you know, whether that be, well, did Jesus really say that, you know, adultery is wrong, perhaps? Well, maybe, maybe that's not quite what it actually means. Maybe there's, maybe there's a bit of an error because of this or that or the other thing. So maybe it is actually okay. Uh, and so then they feel free. Oh, I can, I can commit adultery. That's okay because there's errors in the Bible. Just mm -hmm. one example. Yeah. And actually Romans 118, this is talking about general revelation, but it certainly applies with inerrancy says that they suppress the truth because of their unrighteousness, right? Because they don't want to be held accountable. I love what, I think it was Spurgeon who said this, but he said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but they reject it because it contradicts them. Mm. And I think that that can often be true. Another reason would just be cultural pressure. The moment we live in, right? When scripture's clear teaching stands in opposite, opposition to what's sometimes called the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age, and that's certainly true today. There's certain clear teachings of scripture that just uh, are going very much against popular thinking on certain areas. And so, again, we can say, well, you know what, if there's some errors in scripture, uh, maybe maybe Paul erred on his teaching about marriage and sexuality. Maybe, um, uh, you know, many other things as well that we could we could point to. And so I think that's part of the problem, too, sometimes. Yeah, and I think also connected with that with the culture is our culture is, especially in North America, uh, is just very good, not not actually good, but they're very good at, you know, pointing fingers at something and pointing blame and trying to attack rather than actually, okay, well, what's good about that? What's not? And, you know, even politically, I think of that, like mm. one party isn't actually hardly ever presenting their party. They're just attacking the other party. And that's just so ingrained or engraved in our culture, I think, ingrained in our culture that it ends up even coming to the Bible, you know, well, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Maybe, maybe I'm having a little bit of doubts and then suddenly you start to attack it. Mm -hmm. I think that's almost ingrained in some people because we are taught to constantly attack things, to constantly question things rather than actually trust what is being said is true. Yeah. So it's sort of like this, the, the postmodern hermeneutic of suspicion where mm -hmm. you're, you're, it's um, extreme skepticism, right? You have to, pick apart everything, question everything, especially if uh, what you're reading or what you're hearing elicits a very strong emotional response because emotions are everything. And so if you feel a certain way and you feel offended or you feel like you don't like this, you feel like this is wrong, you feel like this is unfair, then you have every right to attack, right? Um, and, and often with out really an open mind to seeing that uh, maybe there's reasons behind what is being said. Well, another reason, and maybe this is more of an intellectual reason, but some Christians deny this doctrine is because of so-called problem passages, passages that at first appearance seem to contradict other passages or maybe contradict secular history or, or science or that kind of thing. And that takes us to the next question then what do we do with these so-called problem passages? And Ryrie actually has a whole chapter, chapter 14, addressing it. But uh, Joe, let's just briefly summarize and talk about what, what do we do with these, these so-called problem passages? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to ask the question, what, what are we thinking about the scriptures going into it? You know, are we, 
are we assuming when we read scripture that we're going to be trying to find problem passages and that it's it's probably false you know that there probably is errors well if we go in with that mindset uh of course we're going to end up finding uh things that we think contradict because we're looking for it uh but god's word is trustworthy right we we've already established this that it comes from god and god is to be trusted he is true if we have that going into our reading of scripture we should be trusting that the word is true right uh it Jesus himself said it's true. And it, it gives a really good illustration of kind of what our preconceived idea is going into reading the Bible, Ryrie does on, on page 107 and, and 108 about uh, a man who's happily married, right? And he comes home from work one day and sees uh, his wife waving goodbye to another man who's who's pretty good looking. Well, what's, what's he going to think? Well, maybe depends on where his relationship is with his wife. If he if he is confident in his trust in his wife, then surely he'll think, well, I'm sure it was like, it was nothing. I don't doubt my wife's faithfulness to me. Uh, this is, this is an okay thing. Well, if he has any even inkling of doubt though, about his relationship with his wife and her faithfulness, certainly that's going to eat away at him. And he's going to assume maybe she's not an adulterer, but maybe it's going in that direction, right? So it, it really depends on what your preconceived idea is going into uh, the word, just like it would depend for that man, what his preconceived idea of his marriage was when he comes home and sees uh, his wife waving goodbye to to some man. Mm -hmm. That's such a good illustration. And it brings us back to what we talked about early in the book, presuppositions. If I have a presupposition of mistrust in the scriptures, that's going to color how I look at it and, and uh, how I view what seem to be apparent contradictions. But if I have a presupposition of trust in the scriptures, if I give it the benefit of the doubt and uh, trust first and foremost, like what Jesus says about it, that it's true, well, then that also is going to color how I look at things and will give me uh, more of a, an opportunity to find simple explanations, right? Um, again, it kind of comes down to that whole idea of um, being innocent until proven guilty rather than guilty until being proven innocent. And so... Uh, what should we do with these problem passages? Well, we need to consider our presuppositions, but then also we just need to find ways to explain them. It's interesting. For one thing, people always are saying, oh, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. And then you say, well, tell me about them. And a lot of people have just heard that, but they have no clue. Well, I've never even read the Bible. I don't know. <laughs> right. Uh, but some, you know, obviously have looked into it and, and maybe would give some examples. And what I found is most of what seem to be contradictions uh, in the scriptures, particularly what looks like maybe scripture is contradicting other parts of scripture. Usually there's very easy, simple, reasonable answers. Um, so let me give you just two examples. Anyone starts reading the Bible in Genesis, they're like, oh, there's two accounts of creation. That's strange. And they seem kind of different. Well, are they? Are they contradicting each other? And no, clearly the chapter one is sort of giving us the whole big picture, right? It's kind of zoomed out. Here's what happened in these seven days. And then when chapter two comes after it talks about the, the seventh day, the Sabbath, then it zooms in. Okay. Now here's what specifically happened. Uh, in, as in chapter one, 26 to, to 28, there about being made in the image of God. Here's how that all played out. And so that's just one example, but it's very simple that you can see that's what's going on. And no, this doesn't contradict itself. Uh, I'll just give one other very simple example. Uh, I'm preaching through the gospel of John right now, and uh, I'm just going to be preaching on when it talks about Jesus clearing the temple early in his ministry. 
well, hold on a second. The Synoptic Gospels all have a clearing of the temple at the end of the ministry. What's going on here? It's a contradiction. The timing is off. John doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an error. Um, or maybe there were two clearing of the temples, one at the beginning and one at the end. Because if you read the accounts, there are some differences. And it would make absolute sense that Jesus would start that way and end that way if you consider his ministry. So those are just some examples, but we can definitely find very good explanations. And there's a number of books that can help us with that too, including some of the so-called problem passages that are a little bit more difficult to explain. One I would recommend is the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer. That chronicles most of the, excuse me, so-called so problem passages and gives very reasonable answers. You had another suggestion, hey Joe? Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to the Gospels, sometimes people will point to different, very small discrepancies between like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one book that does a very great job of just addressing those so-called discrepancies is uh, the case for Christ. And so I would definitely recommend uh, checking that out if uh, if you're at all interested in what those discrepancies are and how we can address them. Yeah, and that book is at a little bit more of a popular level. So that mm -hmm. could yeah, definitely be helpful. But then the third thing we can do is just patience, right? Um, just trust that what's unclear will be made clear at some point. Either now in this world is we, we uh, study deeper and realize, oh, there is a very reasonable explanation. Or sometimes, and you talked about this last week, Joe, there's been claims that, hold on a second, this isn't historical because there's no extra biblical historical verification of this. Like, for example, there was no man named Pilate. So this must not be true. This must be made up, right? Well, sure enough, centuries later, um, not that long ago, there was found... Um, uh, archaeological evidence that had Pilate's name on it from the time. And so over time, some of those things can just be cleared up. And so we need to be patient. We need to not give up, but rather trust what Jesus, the risen son of God said, and know that whether we will understand some of these difficulties now on earth or one day in heaven, don't give up. You know, as I thought about that, I, I thought about me and sometimes my kids can be this way, but I definitely was terrible when I was a kid with math. Uh, you know, some of those word problems, and I wouldn't understand it. And I just wanted to give up. I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. Something's wrong here. Teacher, this doesn't work. This this is contradictory. It doesn't make sense. You know, and just want to give up. Sure enough, the teacher would come and hold on a second. You're misunderstanding this. Look, here's what this says. Here's what this says. Oh, whoops. I should have been more patient. It would have become clear. That's what we should do with the scriptures as well when it comes to these things. Okay, so another question then. Why is the inerrancy of scripture a critical doctrine? If we can see the scriptures teach it and none of these problem, so-called problem passages undermine it, well, then why is it important? Because some people will say, well, it's not really that important. So why all the fuss? Why can't we just agree that eh, there might be some errors here and there? Well, as soon as you say that there, there might be some errors here and there, uh, what's to say the rest of it couldn't have errors then too, right? It's, it's a whole book. It's all, again... Uh, breathed out by God. If, if there's one error somewhere, what's to say the rest of the book can't be full of errors? And what's our faith based in then? You know, is our faith not rooted in what we're told in the scriptures? Uh, our faith in Jesus Christ and who he is, don't we get that information from the scriptures themselves? Well, if if the Bible has even one error, it could have many. Well, who's to say that it couldn't have errors about who Jesus is? You know, maybe maybe it's lying to us. Maybe that's not true. And suddenly our faith is in absolute shambles. What do we trust in then if the Bible has errors? And I think that's probably the most crucial reason 
why inerrancy is so so important without it we don't have we don't have any ground to stand on i don't think yeah so it definitely affects uh, our faith right and our confidence in the entirety of scripture it also affects our authority source mm -hmm. of authority if we deny inerrancy well then who is the arbiter of truth who decides what's true or not who decides what is an error or isn't an error we do and that just brings us back to what we've talked about time and again that our authority ends up becoming subjective right we put ourselves above the scriptures and therefore above god and then we have no longer any objective source of truth it's subjective it's up to us that's certainly a problem uh, also we run into doctrinal problems mm -hmm. don't we yeah exactly because if if the doctrine of uh, of inerrancy falls suddenly again it's it's a similar argument to what i i said before uh well what about what we read about the holy spirit in the bible well what if there's an error in what we read about the holy spirit what if when we read that the the holy spirit is clearly god that's that's very implicit in in the scriptures well all of a sudden there's an error there well then well there goes the trinity right we don't there goes the deity of, of the holy spirit mm -hmm. uh, all of it, it just ends up in shambles and many other doctrines as well I, i'm just giving one example but really if the doctrine of inerrancy falls all doctrines can suddenly fall as well. Yeah, and a big one right now in the last couple of decades is the historicity of Adam and Eve. Were they mm. real people, right? The problem with that is, is if we deny that and say, no, that was an error, well, then we have issues with the gospel because Paul in, in Romans is clear that uh, Adam was an actual person and that we all are in Adam. That is, we all are um, judged uh, because of our, union with him as he sinning in our place and then it makes the connection of but if you are in christ instead of in adam who also christ a literal real person mm -hmm. then uh you are um given imputed his righteousness right so it affects everything and then finally it can also just affect us morally if scripture is untruthful in some small matters as some claim it's just small matters it's not the big matters of the christian faith well then the question is can we follow suit can we also lie and not speak the truth on small matters well, finally, let's just talk a little bit about how accepting inerrancy affects our Christian lives in practical ways. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, accepting inerrancy should should affect our conduct, our holiness as believers. Because, uh, again, as I mentioned previously, if we decide that the Bible has errors, then suddenly there's excuses to be able to sin. Uh, well, if we realize the Bible does not have errors, then then we read the Bible and realize there is so much stuff in here about living good, holy Christian lives. And then that should push us to actually do that, to actually live lives of holiness, uh, to, to not make excuses for sin, to be zealous for obedience to the scriptures. Uh, and and that's, that's a very, very good thing, an extremely good thing. We want to be growing in holiness as believers. That's a command of scripture. And so if we accept that the scripture is true without error, then I think that should push us to uh, to live holy lives, to have that good, right Christian conduct. Mm -hmm. It also massively affects our assurance of salvation. If there are errors in scripture, well, then is there an error in the gospel promises and all the promises of scripture that we rest our lives on, even our eternities on, right? I mean, every time Jesus in John's gospel again and again says, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. Well, maybe that's it was a copying or a, um, an error in uh, John when he was uh, writing scripture. Well, 
How do I know that's true? Then all of a sudden my assurance is gone, right? Or maybe Paul was mistaken when he said in Romans 8, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, um, there's now, or um, whoever's in Christ, there's no condemnation, right? Uh, and later on talking about in that same chapter that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, can I be sure of that? I, can I have full confidence? Because apparently I can't have confidence in Jonah being real or the Genesis account being literal or et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It affects our assurance in a big way. Yeah. And then uh, to put it in maybe the more positive sense, and when we accept inerrancy, uh, then we can be confident. We can be confident that we're standing in the truth of God's word. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a huge blessing. There's no, no reason to doubt uh, because we're confident. We're standing in the truth. We're standing in God's word that he's breathed out. And there are no errors in that word. Mm -hmm. And it just affects ministry, whatever that looks like. Um, ultimately ministry is ministering the word to people, right? Speaking the truth in love to each other. And if that word has some errors and we don't have complete confidence in it, then what are we doing? Right. I remember having this very sort of existential crisis years ago when I was first a pastor and I had gone to a school that did deny inerrancy and did instill a lot of doubt. And so then that affects the way I was preaching, the way I was counseling, until I finally came to this moment where I remember reading two commentaries on a passage, I think it was in Isaiah, and one, which is from a theologically liberal progressive perspective, was casting all kinds of doubt and that this clearly isn't actually Isaiah's writing, et cetera, et cetera. And then I read a, a more evangelical commentary that did the author did believe in inerrancy, and he's coming to a very different conclusion. And I just remember thinking, well, which is it? It can't be both. And I just realized, man, if I'm preaching and I'm just preaching my own thoughts, or if I'm just picking and choosing what I I think scripture, uh, what is, what parts are true and what parts aren't, what parts are inspired and what parts aren't, what parts are uh, inerrant and what parts aren't. Well, I have no ground to stand on. I have no business speaking to people, particularly with any of authority. I might as well just give up and um, go do my own thing. And so I started a very deep study looking into all the different perspectives. And when I looked into these robust explanations of inerrancy, I realized, oh, this makes complete sense. There's complete, uh, very thorough, good academic reasons to believe in inerrancy. And man, does that change everything? It frees me up now. I'm speaking not on my authority, but the authority of God as I minister the inspired inerrant word of God to people and can... Uh, do so with confidence and try to instill that same confidence in others. And then that just made a huge difference in my life and uh, my wife's life in every area of our, uh, of our marriage, our family, um, our, our evangelism, just everything. So it, it really does affect in the end, really every area mm -hmm. of our lives. And let me just make one quick plug here as we come to an end. Uh, when I was going through that, sort of crisis of faith. And uh, those of you who've heard my whole story know more about it. One book that I found particularly helpful, and I mentioned it before, is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Now, I don't agree with everything he says in every area. I mean, I don't agree with Ryrie on everything either. But his section on the Bible, and particularly on the uh, inspiration, authority, and inerrancy of Scripture is so good, so clear, so thorough. It convinced me completely. And I would just recommend that as well if you'd like to go deeper. Yeah, and I've I've read those chapters as well, and they are absolutely excellent. Probably one of the best handlings that's very readable uh, to tell us that the Bible is is true, is inerrant. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
Well, there's so much more we could say, but I think that's where we'll end. Join us next week as we go on to discuss chapter 15 in Ryrie's book, which will address the canon of scripture, which isn't some kind of Bible gun, but rather refers to the authoritative list of the books of the Bible. So until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and forever. See ya. So long.